Episode 84 NASA After the Space Shuttle The Space Launch System and the Gateway with Dr. David Baker Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK ATUK is a not-for-profit podcast produced by me, Gurbir Singh amateur astronomer and writer based in the UK I produce this podcast for my own education and share it as a free educational resource with anyone who has an interest. ATUK has no subscribers, ads, and you do not need to log in. For more information, please see the About page at www.astrotalkuk.org. Dr. David Baker was born in England and worked for NASA on various programs from Gemini to the Space Shuttle. He was present at Mission Control in 1970 and witnessed the drama of Apollo 13 firsthand. He joined the British Interplanetary Society in 1965, published his first article in the Society's journal Spaceflight in 1969, and since 2011 he's been the editor of that very journal Spaceflight. The very first human spaceflight by NASA was in 1961, the John Glenn's Mercury Atlas uh, flight. In July 2011, the final space shuttle. And since then, amazingly, US has not had the ability to put American astronauts into Earth orbit from America. How... Did that situation arise? It sounds really quite incredible. Yeah, well, it's it's happened before, um, not to such a dramatic extension, but bear in mind that for six years nearly, there was no American manned space flights in the second half of the 70s. From mm. the mid-1975 Apollo-Soyuz docking uh, flight with the Russians mm. to April the 12th, 1981, there were no manned space flights. And we have this gap again. Um, there was a gap between Mercury and Gemini of two years, um, and almost exactly two years. And, and I think the problem is a core failure within the U.S. National Space Program, that there is no extended consistency of long-term program goals. Mm. Because it is so politically influenced, Congresses, and particularly presidents, meddle with national priorities to a greater extent than in less democratic countries in Russia. And certainly in China today, there's a very, well, in Soviet Russia, there was a very long-term commitment which flexed and shifted to a much less degree than in the United States program. Um, China today... I think, admirably, has very long-term goals. They're talking and working right now on programs of immense expenditure which will achieve Russian, um, Chinese bases on the surface of the moon in the 2030s. Now, we're incapable in the West, really, of going beyond the next financial period of reporting because every time, every... every presidential term of four years 
gets virtually reinvented in terms of what the national goals are. So that's the real core problem. And, and I think it's certainly not because of a lack of intent, but NASA, you know, to quote that phrase, um, uh, serves the will of the president. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the problem because it is a government agency. And the White House runs the government as the executive. But to a much greater extent, Congress, um, as the legislature, approves the programs and provides the money. And we've seen how dramatic that can be with this presidency, because the Trump administration had a very negative view of Earth resources, of climate change, and the need to conduct research in these sectors and stripped NASA of programs devoted to those activities. When the budget went to Congress, with all of those deletions in, Congress put them straight back in. And so we get a lot of reporting in the popular press about what the president is doing, but we don't get reported the fact that Congress is putting all those things back in again. So there's this, there's this conflict all the time between what the government of the day would like under the president and what the representatives of the people would like in what is a representative democracy. Britain has a confrontational democracy, and we're, we're seeing the product of that now, and in America, tested to the greatest extent it can be because of the potential or, or, or the, the um, extended lockdown of government where... NASA is embraced by that half of government that shut down NASA itself, except for critical programs such as keeping the International Space Station running, is also laid off. NASA is now not able to conduct the programs it would like. So it's the whipping boy, if you will, by both the president and Congress. So it's down to politics, which ironically is what makes these projects possible in the first place. Ironically. It's interesting that um, one-party states like China have a a much more strategic and stable and a a more um, successful uh, history of uh, space programs and executing them pretty much on time. However, you'd think if it was just a a democratic uh, procedural thing, then any one-party state would be successful as China has been. But Russia almost a one-party state, hasn't quite measured up to the success of its past. But if I can stick with um, NASA for the moment, um, what happened to the ARIES program and what exactly is the Space Launch System? Well, originally, back in the early uh, part of this century, NASA was looking at where to invest next because the shuttles were getting old um, we'd had the loss of two shuttles replaced by only one endeavor, which, of course, uh, as a result of the loss of Challenger, but there was no uh, opportunity for replacing Columbia. And so prior to 2010, um, under the Bush administration, NASA looked and gave the president options for either plowing in a lot of money to put in all of those safety features and give the shuttle really long life and essentially give it a refurbishment by by literally cycling the vehicles back in and refurbishing them, adding escape capsules, adding filament-wound boosters, 
um, even liquid boosters. So there was a huge menu of opportunities there. On the other hand, one component of NASA, the, the opinion was divided at the agency, one the opponents of maintaining the shuttle was, well, why do we just keep on going with the shuttle remorselessly? Because it's done its job of uh, building a space station. Why don't we begin a program of commercial development? We're already beginning to trickle through some entrepreneurs, billionaires, uh, Elon Musk uh, particularly. Uh, why don't we let those guys develop the, the routine supply to the space station while we abandon the space station, America, um, have a discussion and, and an agreement with the other partners, which, of course, was the European Space Agency, Japan, Russia, and Canada, um, and put that amount that we've been putting into space station and shuttle into the development of a major exploration program to get NASA back to what it should be doing. And that exploration program was the Constellation program, which required two vehicles, Ares-1 and Ares-5. And Ares-1 would be capable of launching into Earth orbit an Orion spacecraft, which was really an enlarged Apollo look-alike, mm -hmm. or as some um, rather irreverently called it, Apollo on steroids. <laughs> and, and, and that program went forward. And the commercial space program began under President Bush, when um, and, and, and that required the development of, of those launch vehicles as well as Altair, which was the lander, the moon lander, so that NASA wanted to get back to, to the moon, uh -huh. essentially. And, and, but it was an Apollo-like mission. It was, it was not with uh, orbital bases or anything like that. It was literally to, to reopen the technological capabilities for getting to the moon and to build a program of exploration and then eventually the technology and the hardware to go on to Mars. So well, Ares, the, Ares yeah. the plug was pulled on Ares and replaced with SLS. Yes, what was the critical factor for um, dropping the Ares program, the Constellation program? President Obama. Right. He did not like <laughs> the American government spending three to four billion a year, as it was, on manned spaceflight, he banked on the commercial providers uh -huh. which had come on a pace and literally wanted um, to completely abandon government-led human spaceflight and merely have NASA manage a bunch of entrepreneurs and private organizations to operate under contract to NASA. And so the whole of the Constellation program was cancelled. That went to Congress, and Congress said, oh, no, you don't. And I, I do have to say that when you look at the facts and the historical record, there was a greater division and argument between the Democratic president in a Democratic White House and a Democratic Congress than there is now between a Republican president and a Republican government and a Democratic majority House of Representatives. And, and people... People don't seem to, to see that, but it is factually the case. And so Congress was absolutely incensed over this. And on a response and reaction, forced the president to continue with the development of the two major systems, the heavy lift launch vehicle and a government-funded deep space exploration people carrier, the Orion now, Orion's only capable of carrying four people for a month. Mm -hmm. It's a go-nowhere exploration vehicle. So it always will be the tag-along taxi to whatever <laughs> else you take to get you into real deep space. And all these years from that period of when the 
Constellation program was cancelled until we really got back underway with SLS. Those years were lost. And so it's been a case of reinventing the wheel and going back. And, and along the way, there's been this reluctance under the Obama administration to even contemplate getting anywhere near the Constellation program. So what to use SLS in Iran for? Well, all kinds of things were, were, were thought up and drummed up. For instance, asteroid, redirecting asteroids, collecting samples from asteroids. But what does that do to develop the technology for going to Mars? Very little, apart from electric propulsion, which you would need to get the vehicles out to the asteroids, etc. So now what we have, toward the end of the Obama administration, where really the energy and the interest in driving an Obama-led space program began to fall off toward the end of his second term, and you, you find this really where the first term is all about uh, investing in brownie points to get you a second term, and the second term is essentially looking after your reputation when you leave. <laughs> so, <laughs> <he> says cynically. <laughs> well, that's uh, democracy, I suppose. Um, oh, yes, it is. <laughs> when, so the cost of Aries, three to four billion, yeah. um, was too high. It was replaced by SLS. The yeah, cost yeah. of that was about half that per year, about one, one and a half per, per year. And I understand currently cost of SLS is about 14 billion euro, uh, dollars, and yet the first flight is due in 2020. How likely is that 2020 date to be met? I think it's possible. I don't think it's probable, and I would bank on 2021. Mm -hmm. um, but... Uh, of course, that's just between you and me, Gabir. Don't quote me. <laughs> but no, I think there are some technical problems. You're not going to shout about the problems you might be facing, but there are problems with SLS. And it is um, a complex project, yeah. so that, that's not, not, nothing unusual. Now, the, um, currently, the SLS program has just two flights, the Exploration Mission 1 and Exploration Mission 2. The first one doesn't have any astronauts in it, though. No, it doesn't, because, of course, there is the very present need to be able to demonstrate a full mission potential with this. It's much like we flew two Saturn Vs before we, we, we felt competent to put humans on it. Mm. Um, and in the current seriously risk-averse culture that exists and, and really hogties NASA to a huge extent, um, there is no desire to, uh, to actually incorporate everything in an all-up systems test. And I think the problem here is largely because um, you have a lot of new technology into both into the spacecraft. Now, the Orion spacecraft that will fly on Exploration Mission 1 is very different to that that flew on the, the EFT-1 of a, um, of a Delta IV Heavy. And I think that, uh, you remember a few years ago, um, the, the original Orion spacecraft, that was more like a Block 1 Orion. The heat shield is very different, need to test that. You don't want to put people on this. Um, and also the development, the sequential development of systems, the, this first one won't have an environmental control system. Uh -huh. That has lagged behind. There have been development problems with that. So essentially it's a block one spacecraft. And we had this in Apollo. The great mistake in Apollo was we tried to put humans onto a block one. And of course it was so flawed it caused the pad uh -huh. fire that lost the crew their lives. 
and then you move to block two for for people carrying at, in the development sites. So this is the difference. And now you know you just need to test it out in order to be able to to have a a um, pathfinder both for the technology and the mission. But not all the hardware for carrying humans would even be ready by 2020. Oh, okay. But um, the first mission will be going as far as the moon, which will be the first time um, that a, a almost crew-capable vehicles yeah. left the Earth to get to the moon. The second mission, so this will be the second SLS mission, will yeah. launch astronauts, and they'll go all the way to the moon on that second mission, yeah. the first go. Yes, that's right. Yes, it will. And and I don't think there's anything unusual about that because once you break it down into segments and into plateaus, as we called it mm-hmm. in the Apollo program, it's, it, it's pursuant to the very finest ethic of the all-up systems testing concept that you go into Earth orbit first. And there's been an extension, incidentally, of how this mission will go. Exploration Mission 2 is changing in the nature of the way it's configured the flight plan if you will it will spend more time in low earth orbit and then it will go into a highly elliptical orbit so you'll check everything out there beyond the van allen radiation belt Mm. and only then will you then reignite that stage again to propel you right out onto a retrograde lunar orbit um all the lunar orbits we've flown in the apollo program were retrograde it's just that we've now inserted it into the nomenclature of and (laughs) and to the lexicon retrograde. In other words, you go opposite way around the moon to the way the moon is going around the Earth. So right. you approach from around the, the leading edge as the moon yep. is going around the Earth. And, and yes, that has changed a lot. So there's a degree of conservatism which has worked in. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, there is a risk, but, but spaceflight is risky. And you can, you, can, you can fly 10, as we saw with Apollo 13, you can find numerous flights towards the moon and around and not just find that little glitch that's going to potentially threaten the entire crew. And those gremlins can equally be within the systems that we're developing now, just as they were in the Apollo spacecraft 14, 50 years ago. Finally, if I can turn to what has been termed by some people as um, the International Space Station 2. So it has had different names. It was the Deep Space mm-hmm. Gateway, the Lunar Orbiting Platform Gateway. Um, yeah. Currently, what is this uh, current nomenclature, and what, where it will be orbiting? It won't be under uh, in Earth orbit, will it? The reason for the gateway, as we call it, is simply because the United States, with its fixed space budget of about 0.5% of federal expenditure each year, is incapable of providing the money for a wholly made-in-the-USA product. So even the Orion spacecraft, half of it's being built by the Europeans, the service module, and not in all of the programs previously. Mercury, Germany, Apollo, shuttle, have we had half of that vehicle built outside the United States. Hmm. So that's the first base, the fact that... NASA is having to encourage a continuation of the big cooperation it's had on the International Space Station. And in terms of pressurized volume, it's important to remember that America does not have the majority of cubic meter space on the ISS. All of the partners have provided a sufficient uh, volume of material that it actually outstrips the quantity that the United States has provided. So taking that model... 
and opportunities for what to do with Orion and SLS. And it really has to be that it was put back by Congress without any specific mission orientation and has gone through this route of whether to go to an asteroid, whether to do this, whether to do that. Finally, to keep the international partners together, it's a template, the ISS, for continuing with ISS modules, new modules, built in orbit around the moon. And they will be assembled there, launched separately and delivered to orbit around the moon and plugged together. So the Gateway is considered to be a staging post for robotic and human visits to the surface, as well as developing propulsion like really competent and capable electric propulsion to be able to change that orbit to go to different types of lunar orbit, as well as developing the technology for going to Mars. So in that way, it's on the critical path to Mars. I'm highly supportive of this personally, and it's opinion-orientated, obviously, as <laughs> it is, simply because I think it does, for the first time, get us to that long-range commitment. And while people will have varied views on the the judgments and deliberations of the current incumbent at the White House, President Trump had left this alone and simply said, get on with the job, it sounds good to me. And that is refreshing, because almost every president has had to meddle and fiddle with the space program, and it's taken us on different courses and different tracks. Now, it's uniting the Russians, the Europeans, the Japanese, and the Canadians, the Canadians with their great robotic experience, key to, us, to, to managing and assembling and moving external experiments around the various modules at the Gateway, and to deliver back to the commercial companies when space station ISS, and, and there could well be concurrent operations with both these two, there is certainly that being talked about in Europe by the European Space Agency to keep both the ISS and the Gateway going. Gateway will be much smaller, don't, don't let's run away with the fact that it's another big space station, it's much, much smaller, about a third of the size but it will provide a technology jumping off point and it will continue this international investment. I am a great believer in international space projects and I think the next step we need to take with this is to get the Chinese involved as well and that's, that's another step. Mm. So it's going to be smaller, uh, there'll be fewer international partners. Uh, yeah. At the International Aeronautical uh, Congress in, uh, in Bremen last year, Roscosmos was uh, represented by Dmitry Loskutov, and he wasn't from his comments at the press conference. He, he was saying that this um, uh, gateway is pretty much an American project. Um, how confident are you that Russia will participate in the same way that it has done with the International Space Station? That's a bit of a $64,000 question, <laughs> because you could say that Russian participation in the ISS was a Yeltsin project. Right. Since it was formed between Yeltsin and Bill Clinton, who wanted to cancel the International Space Station project outright, and would have done so had not the Russians come on board. The sad problem for the Russians, which is a topic for another day perhaps, is the fact that today, with a more robustly um, intrusive foreign affairs initiative from Russia, they're beginning to see that they're continually tagging along behind these America-led programs. Mm -hmm. But bear in mind that there's a new head of Roscosmos, and he is quite confident that this is the way forward because they are actively developing a successor to Soyuz. Mm -hmm. And while they have even 
bigger financial problems than NASA has with its own government. Um, nevertheless, I think, I think inevitably this is the only place for the Russians to go with their human spaceflight program. An independent, completely separate human spaceflight program would cost them very much more and would be just as unworkable as if the Europeans tried to do that. How realistic is the probability that uh, Russia will instead throw its lot with the Chinese and have a joint human spaceflight program with China? To a limited extent, I think, but China's not yet at the position where I, I think we can run away with ourselves about being in awe of the Chinese. Um, they are running into big problems with their new launch vehicle, huge problems in terms of manufacturing and engineering it, putting the launch date further and further back. I don't think Russia sees, as China is out in the wilderness part, if you will, of this global spacefaring community, largely because America doesn't want them in, mm-hmm. um, which is another sad reflection on foreign politics. Um, but at the same time, I think Russia feels that the best bet is to go with the big alliance of the ISS partners rather than just China, which really, really um, has not gone in its space station operations beyond the free-flying space lab equivalent. Um, And that's not to degrade, demean, or in any way downplay the achievements of the Chinese program. But we have to be realistic. They are not there yet. They are showing demonstrable success Mm -hmm. with their robotic program and have confidence for their future human space program, but they're yet at a very low level. I can't see Russia doing that. It's interesting. If you look at what China did last year, not only the success of Chang'e 4, it had the most uh, missions, launch emissions yeah. of yeah. any nation. And you think it's still, I think uh, politically, in, certainly in the US, it's still very much out in the cold. But China is now, surely it's maturing, isn't it? It, it, it is maturing, but it's got a long way to go. I think we can point to the, the huge surfeit of, of you look back in, into the days of the Soviet Union and, and in the 70s and, and early 80s, well, whole of the 80s, the vast majority of satellites being launched were Russian and the payloads were enormous. Um, I think just numerical numbers of satellites being launched is not a measure of where you are in the technological race for the human exploration of deep space. Mm-hmm. I think the two are very, very different. It's really like measuring, or it's like opting, well, because Elon Musk and Falcon are now the majority launcher from the United States of payloads, that they should take over and run the moon program. They're very, very different areas. They're going into the same domain, the vacuum of space, but I think the numerical volume of just launching satellites is on a different level and with established technologies mm-hmm. and with established developments. But as they move, they're going to need a whole new class of vehicle, both for Earth-orbiting space stations, lunar stuff. Um, they've got a long way to go yet. But again, I'm not demeaning them. Mm. It is where they are, and, and they have incredible success. If I can finally ask you about China and particularly the legal restrictions that Americans have put on the cooperation in space with China. You and I are old enough to remember the days of uh, uh, Apollo and uh, the Soviet Union, late 60s, when we thought, oh, they're competitors, they they will never collaborate. And yet we did see the Apollo-Soyuz test project. 
Is it the the, the Wolf uh, Amendment that's uh, legally restricting Ch- China uh, America to collaborate with in space? Do you see that an end to that? Do you feel there's a certain ine- inevitability uh, in uh, China and U.S. Uh, collaborating, just like the U.S. and Soviet Union did in the past? Sadly, I think because we live in a world that is not exclusively the wondrous exploration <laughs> space, um, and because we're talking about big governments with big issues across broad issues and big platforms on the world stage, I think that the broader base of what China seeks to achieve in the in their geographic and geopolitical sector. I think it will leave them in the cold as far as the Americans are concerned for a very, very long time. There are threats coming from China with regard to refusing to... um, Some people may not think that this is involved, but I really do, because I came very early on in, in this business to know that the geopolitics of space are the ones that guide what is actually going to happen. Mm-hmm. And the threats, for instance, over Taiwan, that they will they will obtain Taiwan, even with the use of military force if necessary, actually verbally saying that, um, plus the fact that there are, are huge standoffs with regard to the new islands which are being created in the South China Sea, I think the fact that the Pentagon has moved its axis of first threat potential from Europe and Russia now to Southeast Asia and its potential confrontation with China, new generations of strategic and tactical weapon systems, um, you put all that in the mix. I cannot see an American Congress in the predictable future uh-huh. being amenable to opening up the or extending the hand of friendship in the way that Bill Clinton did to the Russians, who threw the Russians a lifeline. These matters are very different. And I spent a lot of time between America and England and Russia, a lot of time talking with the Russians, and they knew the end was coming. They could see it, and they could see as their budgets were going down, they were extremely keen, and for several years before the collapse of the Soviet Union, a lot of my visits to the Soviet Union were in order to extend cooperative ventures and deals that would be ready to enact under better political times. So the Russians were forced into this largely for their own self-survival. That is not the case. With a major international global power on the ascendant, rather than one which is old, tired, and unable to pay its bills, as was happening in the latter years of the Soviet system. I think they're totally different. It's fascinating times then, and it's fascinating times now. And for somebody whose career spans both those areas, it's uh, um, terrific insight. Um, So for the moment, Dr. David Baker, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Gabriel. Always a pleasure. (laughs)